The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. And in the span of just a few hours, we've gone from the everything rally to the everything sell-off. 2021 is now starting off the pretty sharp market downturn. We're down 627 right now. We're down more than 700 at the lows just a short time ago. More than 2% declines for all the major averages. So don't look here for any kind of rotation or reopening play. No, it's pretty indiscriminate. In fact, the Dow is now having its worst start to the trading year since 1932. We don't like those comparisons. Let's Let's get straight to it with Mike Santoli, who's monitoring all of the action for us. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, pretty stark reversal. We did open higher. The market almost always opens higher, by the way, in the first trading day of the year. Uh, it did come down. Didn't do too much damage, though. If you want to look at a, a one-year chart of the S&P 500, we're no longer in melt-up mode, but definitely nothing like meltdown. What we did do is go below the break-even level for that Santa Claus rally period, the, the close on December 23rd. So that's one thing off the boards in terms of bullish implications if we don't close above that tomorrow. But we have stayed above the level that capped the market. Market in November. A lot of folks looking 3640-ish area that would maybe change that story and uh, kind of negate this whole December breakout period. Take a look at Treasury yields. They have backed off a little bit. Here is a similar story, though. If you go back a few months, we've not quite broken this general line of uptrend here, but maybe it's a little bit touch and go at this point at 0.91. Probably wouldn't want to see this get back down toward toward 0.8 or else it would change the whole story about the reflation and and growth acceleration piece that we all uh, pretty much are looking for. The volatility index, a real pop right here. It was already elevated relative to the quiet grind higher of the market. But you see, it doesn't really register that much compared to what we were looking at last year. But with the market at the highs and really in this gentle phase, you would expect more downtrend. People are definitely bracing for some kind of tactical risk, obviously, around the Georgia runoff, maybe into the uh, inauguration. And then uh, who knows, maybe it's fourth quarter earnings and uh, more shutdown fears, Kelly. Yeah, I mean, it's striking, Mike, as I look through some of the biggest movers. Tesla's still positive today. (laughs) I mean, if Tesla's not down on a day like this, but it's interesting what you say about the VIX, because... 2% 2% sell-offs, you know, they're not exactly garden variety, but that's a big move. And I wonder what you read into the fact that, you know, the VIX, which has never quite settled down after the pandemic, no. is, is so feisty today. I think there's a combination of people definitely looking to lock in some of the gains from last year. There's definitely some deferred selling happening today. If you look at the FANG stocks in particular, they wouldn't necessarily be where you would go to if you were worried about an election or or macro risk. They're really just kind of a skimming away of of profit. So there is a lock it in uh, type instinct out there. Plus, you know, we just had this tremendous shock 10 months in the rearview mirror. Now, 10 months maybe is seemingly like a long time, but that's something that does have aftershock effects, at least in market psychology. Uh, And I think that there's a a general sense out there that a January, February air pocket in the markets was not uh, to be unexpected necessarily. Yeah, it's a super weird, uh, super weird trading session. You have some of the worst performers in the S&P are Carnival and Norwegian. You go, okay. then you look over to the Nasdaq. The worst performers there is Peloton. So 
you know, the high flyers are getting sold off. The stay at home plays are getting sold off. The reopening plays are getting sold off. Any uh, pattern, Mike, I know we'll talk to you again in a minute, but any pattern emerging to you so far? Not in this really. Session? It seemed like the recent winners definitely were maybe getting sold a little bit harder. Again, you're in a new tax year. That could be uh, one reason for that. But aside from, as you point out, the, the flight to quality into Tesla, there's nothing else that, uh, that really does stand out except for a little bit of a skimming off the top. Banks are weak, too, with that yield compression. So uh, tough to really pluck out a narrative theme. Yeah. All right, Mike, we'll see you in a minute. Thank you, sir. Mike Santoli there. So are we starting to see real cracks in the rally and what a rally it's been? Let's talk about that. What could be some of the causes? Katerina Simonetti joins me now. She's senior vice president at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. And Doug Ramsey is the chief investment officer at the Luthold Group. Welcome to you both. So, Katerina, let me start with you. I mean, for some context, we're coming off a two-year stretch in which the NASDAQ is up 80% and the S&P is up, I think, 35. I mean, so in the context of, and we've been for months talking about how the fear and greed indexes are at all-time highs, and we know what's going on with the valuation. And look at how much Zoom is down from the peak. I mean, the software names have definitely been telling you that some kind of correction is coming. But what kind of correction do you think this is if it's more than just a one-day reset? Kelly, thank you for having me on the show and Happy New Year. And are we really surprised? Of course not. Uh, we had quite a lot of a, a big rally. Uh, the, a lot of large cap names, specifically in tech, got a little bit ahead of themselves. And we expected this. We expected that there would be some type of a correction, some type of a sell-off. And so now we're experiencing it. And the key here, the real question is not what is happening today and what sectors are down today, but what we can expect from this year. And quite frankly, despite of the short-term uncertainties, we are finding ourselves in the bull market. So this correction, this bit of a sell-off, whether it's short-term or longer-term, should be viewed as nothing but a buying opportunity, an opportunity to reposition the portfolios. And I mean, Doug, here's the question. Where else do you go, right? I mean, we just heard people talking about how treasuries, uh, I think it was Bryn last hour, Bryn Talkington saying, why would you want to go into into treasuries? It's hard to go into corporate debt right now. I mean, all of these valuations, when we were talking about the everything rally, that included bonds, right? There's just not a lot of value left, especially if we're talking about some inflation pressures today. So what are investors supposed to do? Just sit there in cash and hope that this is the big one? Uh, I think some cash is okay. We're at our minimum allowable in bonds. Uh, I agree that, uh, I mean, corporates, the risk reward looks really poor. Treasuries uh, look look really poor. Uh, if you see inflation getting anywhere close to that 2% Fed goal. So I think it's difficult in the equities and especially the large cap growth stocks are priced off those incredibly low yields. So don't see a whole lot of value there. I think it's okay to have some cash, uh, some gold, and uh, to have an equity hedge. I mean, we're around average exposure right now in terms of equities, and we always, uh, not always, but currently have uh, an equity hedge as well against, uh, against our longs. Doug, I look at your notes here, and I think it's interesting some of the points that you're making, um, you know, maybe interesting in a bad way for people who are long right now, but you're saying, you know, that optimism among traders is even more extreme than it was at the tech bubble peak. Uh, and you say, for what it's worth, a lot of famous bubbles have popped right around the beginning of the year. Japanese stocks in January of 1990, silver in January of 1980, the Nifty 50 in 1973. Um, do you think large cap growth is going to be next on that list or if not the whole market? 
you know, I certainly would put large cap growth stocks in, in that mix among historic bubbles. I mean, they're about 50 times uh, earnings right now. That's 10 points above where they were. You mentioned the nifty 50 top of early 73. Uh, on the other hand, they went to 70 times in early 2000. So that's the problem with these bubbles is sometimes they're easier to play on the upside uh, than it is to try to short them. So, um, I mean, certainly there's something about the turn of the calendar. And we noticed that really first in, in I guess, uh, the currency markets that, that sometimes just causes a massive reassessment in these, in these bubble assets. So is this the peak? I don't know. I mean, the market's very broad. Uh, maybe we have a little bit of pullback here and then a run to higher highs later this spring where we start to see some narrowing of the market. That would be like the traditional template. And maybe it's just, you know, the rate of change in liquidity, money supply growth starting to come off. It's 25 percent rate. Fed balance sheet growth starting to come off. It's it's incredible rate. You know, just the rate of change in liquidity could be the, the trigger. But I think that's probably yet a few months out, at least. Yeah. And the, the Fed's doing everything it can to uh, tell people, you know, we're not going to do uh, premature tightening and, and so forth. And that's why I think that's going to be the big interesting Battle is probably too strong, but face-off this year is between the data heating up on the supply side and uh, policymakers not wanting to respond to that too quickly. Uh, the flip side, Katarina, is that they get a market where stocks just keep going to the moon and everything else does too. Uh, what do you think is going on with real yields here? I mean, how does that play into the, the places where you want to be a buyer right now? Kelly, we believe that rates are going meaningful and higher this year, perhaps towards middle or the end of the year. And this is quite frankly, when we look at equities, this is the story here. And today might be a non-discriminatory uh, sell-off. But what we think that should happen right now, well, it makes sense to take profits off of the big mega tech names. There are pockets of opportunity in equity market that are going to benefit from the tailwinds of higher rates, specifically financial, specifically uh the cyclicals, we believe that small caps are better positioned than large caps. We believe that there is opportunity in uh, sectors like industrials, like uh, consumer uh, staples. Uh, there are a lot of pockets of opportunity here. And the question here uh, on when and perhaps there's going to be some correction before market starts going up again. But the story of this market is going to continue being the story of recovery. Doug, let me ask you a final question here. I'm going to try to thread the needle a little bit because this is wonky. But, you know, we're talking about, uh, as Katarina said, she thinks rates is go are, are going up. We see in the 10-year tips yield uh, today, as Peter Bookvar was highlighting, we are at 2%. So we're we're getting back up there. That means that kind of the, the real yield right now is actually lower than it's been during the entire pandemic. It's minus 1.1%. So the point is this, if real yields are basically at fresh lows, then why shouldn't the market ultimately shake today's correction off and start moving to new highs? Well, you know, again, I think it's a question of what you own within the market. Uh, small cap stocks historically have done really well in negative real yield environments. Gold and silver have done well in that environment. But I, I still think there's this assumption that the Fed is going to tamp down that long end. But if we start to see the actual inflation numbers pushing towards that 2% assumption that's already in the tips, I mean, there could be a violent upside adjustment in that 10-year yield. And it's going to be these long-duration assets 
Uh, and I'm really squarely focused on the large cap growth stocks there. They're going to see significant multiple compression. So I do agree with the idea that you're heavier in some of the value sectors, uh, the recovery reopening sectors. Uh, but I do think there's yeah. even much better value in mid and small caps than, than in large cap value stocks. Much better value. All right. All right. Wonderful. Thank you both for joining me today and didn't expect it to be quite uh, this rollicking of a session. But here we are. Doug Ramsey, Katerina Simonetti talking us through a a downturn that's had the Dow down 700 points. We're down 575 right now. Coming up, more Americans chose to travel over the holiday season, but investors aren't buying that it's the start of a real rebound. Will there be any names that come out on top, especially with today's declines, backtracking, if you want to call it that? We're going to take a look at booking airlines and hotels next. Marriott's down 5% right now. Plus, the money keeps pouring into Georgia in one of the most consequential Senate races in years. We'll look at where we stand and what the polls are saying. And let's take a quick look at where we are in markets with energy trying to eke out a gain here. Uh, Everything else is pretty much in the red right now. Real estate, uh, the worst performer, down nearly 3%. Perhaps tells you about what's going on with rates, utilities, hit as well. But industrials and tech also down more than 2.5%. We're back in a couple. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're watching a reopening reversal as this market sell-off hits every part of the travel industry today. 2021 could be a make-or-break year for the sector as people try to get back to some sense of normalcy. So what are the top plays that investors may want to consider buying right now? For a look at the booking names, I'm joined by Tom White, Senior Analyst for Internet Services at DA Davidson. Savanthi Seif has her eyes on the skies for us. She's the Managing Director of Global Airlines at Raymond James. And Patrick Scholes is tracking the hotels. He's Managing Director of Lodging and Experiential Leisure at Truist Securities. Welcome to all of you. Tom, let's start with you, especially on a day like this. Which bookers should people consider picking up for the year? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Kelly, and uh, Happy New Year. Uh, look, I think the main thing that investors in the when it comes to the online travel stocks, need to keep in mind is that uh, the, the industry is going to recover, uh, but this recovery is not going to be linear. Uh, we think exiting 2021, uh, we're, we're close to more normalized levels, uh, but probably still a bit below, say, the fourth quarter of, of 2019. Uh, uh, you know, against that backdrop, um, you know, we think a company like Airbnb is probably the, the safest stock to own here. Uh, we think that they've got uh, exposure in all the right places when it comes to leisure travel in particular, which we think is going to come back uh, more robustly than corporate travel, where there's some questions about whether the, the pandemic has led to maybe some long-term kind of demand destruction. Uh, and also because uh, Airbnb has got really the most uh, unique and varied uh, accommodation inventory out there that speaks to the broadest number of potential traveler use cases uh, including some novel ones that have popped up during the pandemic, like work from anywhere, for example. 
It's amazing to me, Tom, that your top pick and one of the few names you actually have a buy on is Airbnb, which you initiated today, just given the valuation that this thing opened at. I mean, that really tells you something. You're neutral on both booking and Expedia. You say Lyft, even though it's adjacent uh, to kind of your your main coverage, but is another one of your favorite ideas for 2021, right? Yeah, look, you know, I think we're generally positive on both booking and Expedia. We've got a neutral rating, but they're both great companies. Uh, but again, uh, we think that the visibility in those businesses over the next few quarters uh, is is a little bit less than than what we see at Airbnb. Also, Airbnb has proven over the last, last quarter or two, at least, that uh, its business is more resilient and more adaptive. They've uh, they've been pressured by the pandemic, but not nearly to the same degree uh, as 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 Booking.com and Expedia. Uh, Lyft's an interesting one. Um, you know, it's it's one of those names that really has not benefited from the pandemic at all. A lot of people. Uh, you know, haven't really even opened their Lyft app uh, since the pandemic really started. Uh, but in some ways, we view it as kind of the purest example of, of a North America or U.S.-centric uh, reopening. Um, and, you know, Lyft yeah. rides are, are very much closely tied to daily life. Um, and, and we think that's going to snap back uh, quite quickly. Fascinating. Airbnb and Lyft. Tom, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Tom White. Let's turn to the airlines now. After the lockdowns have been pressuring these stocks for the past year, the XAL is down over 5% in today's sell-off. And these 2020 losses are reflected in the screenings. 324 million passengers went through airport security checkpoints, uh, which is a fraction of what we saw in 2019. But yesterday, TSA saw the highest checkpoint volume since the pandemic hit. Delta CEO Ed Bastian said in a memo he expects to be cash flow positive by the spring. Uh, here to talk about the airline play, Savanthi Scythe is managing director and global airlines analyst at Raymond James. Savanthi, I'll boil it right down for people. Your top picks are Allegiant, Alaska and SkyWest. Is that right? That's correct. They're very domestic focused. And we think much of the, this is still going to be a transition year. And the first part of the year is probably going to look a lot like what we've seen already, which is leisure VFR recovering faster and, and a very domestic focus. But as we get into the back half, I think there could be some interesting moves in, in kind of the business demand and international demand as well. Explain what VFR is. And so are you saying that you think people have some time to wait before they pick up these names? Um, not, not really. I, I think now, you, especially for airlines, you want to buy it when sentiment is really negative. Uh, VFR is visiting uh, friends and relatives. So the demand that we're seeing today is by and largely visiting friends and relatives and leisure. And it's very domestic oriented. And I think that sh- should continue. And I think we'll still get improvements. We're definitely seeing a pattern where the peak periods, which is, you know, anything around a, a holiday weekend, you're seeing good demand there, but anything in kind of a non-holiday weekend, the demand is really weak. And so that's why, you know, our three top picks tend to be domestic focused, uh, Allegiant Alaska, very focused. Yep. And we see declines of five to six plus percent for them today, uh, perhaps an opportunity. Uh, Savvy, thanks so much. Uh, again, on the larger cap side, I know you prefer United uh, Southwest underperform on American. All right, we appreciate it. Let's move on, talk about our journey through the travel industry, bringing us now to hotel and lodging companies. Those stocks taking a leg lower today, especially the likes of Marriott, Hyatt, and Hilton, which have big global exposure. The average traveler is itching to get out of the house, but my next guest says that if corporate travel's recovery is delayed, 2021 estimates may need to be lowered Again, Patrick Scholes is managing director at Truist. So, Patrick, who should people pick up on a downturn like we're seeing this afternoon? Who should they avoid? 
Well, I continue to like the more leisure-centric names within the hotel and hotel-related universe. Certainly, like others have said a moment ago, that there is a tremendous amount of pent-up demand uh, for leisure travel. And really, the names that I like are reflective of that. Not just leisure travel, but domestic leisure travel. And a couple names that uh, are most exposed to that, which do have uh, attractive valuations on the hotel side is going to be Wyndham Hotels. They get roughly 70% of their business uh, from leisure travel, and uh, most of that is drive-to. And then an offshoot of the hotel industry is the timeshare vacation ownership industry, which is 100% leisure. Um, you know, Certainly, they will be great beneficiaries of all this uh, pent-up demand. And as I mentioned, I would say they're at... Uh, uh, decent valuations. That's fascinating. So you're actually looking to, I'll colloquially say, the timeshare industry, but as more uh, attractive to you than some of the traditional hotel names. Is that right? And is that where you're referring to the risk of estimates needing to go lower? That's absolutely right. And when I say risk of estimates needing to go lower, that's going to be for more of your uh, business travel and group and convention centric companies. Uh, Many of those are the public hotel REITs, um, also companies uh, like uh, Marriott, uh, Hilton, and uh, Hyatt. Certainly, we see the trajectory of the recovery. Again, most pent-up demand will be leisure, very strong out of the box here, um, followed by the uh, business travel. But that's going to take some time to recover. It's probably not going to happen to any degree in the first half of the year. And then a real Achilles heel for many hotels that have exposure uh, to group and convention is, of course, group and convention. That's going to take years to uh, get back to 2019 levels. And interestingly, you know, we talk about getting back to 2019 levels. Many hotel stocks right now, after the strong rally uh, we saw in the fall, are really only off 10% uh, from their, on average, from their pre-COVID highs. Uh, so it does tell me that there's quite a bit uh, priced in and very high expectations. That's fascinating. So again, a retail-led market rebound, a retail-led vacation rebound is what you're saying. Wyndham Destinations, Hilton Grand Vacations, Marriott Vacations as well. Patrick, thanks so much. Patrick Scholl's joining us. Some insight on hotel picks this year. Coming up, we'll get the latest on Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan's joint healthcare venture. If you haven't heard, Haven has disbanded, as our Hugh.com just reported in the past hour or so. We're going to speak with him about that scoop and what's behind the breakup next. And while that haven is over, the safe haven trade is on today as investors pile into gold and silver. Gold is seeing its highest price since November. Silver up there at levels not seen since September, even though it's typically a little more industrially sensitive. Don't forget, you can still watch us live on the go using the CNBC app anytime. The exchange is back in a few. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. 
their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets this afternoon. It's been an ugly session to kick off the year. At the lows, we are down 724 points on the Dow. Look at that, though. We've sprung back by nearly 300. So we're down 460. That's a 1.5% drop. Very similar gains to the Dow, or declines for the Dow, S&P, and the NASDAQ today. Energy managing to eke out about a three-quarters of a percent gain today, but everybody else is negative. Real estate, the worst performer, down 2.5%. And as mentioned, there's not a lot of difference between the reopening trades, the state home names. Take a look at the FANG names, for instance. Apple, Netflix, Amazon, Alphabet, all moving lower. Netflix, the worst performer of the bunch, down about 4%. Casual restaurants also seeing a drop. Denny's, Chipotle, Bloomin' Brands, and Starbucks uh, also moving lower in the session. And Denny's case by 7%. And Boeing is lower following a downgrade to underperformant Bernstein today. They're talking about some sales pressure around the Dreamliner and a potentially bigger than expected problem with the plane's fuselage. Uh, Boeing down about 4% right now. There are some names in the green. Zoom is one of them, and that's been a tough one of its own the last few months. Pinterest, Moderna, L Brands, Tapestry. Uh, those are some other bright spots today. Zoom up about 4%. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News Update. Welcome back, Sue. Good to see you, Kelly. Happy New Year. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo warning hospitals that they will be fined if they fail to use the coronavirus vaccine they get within a week of receiving it. Cuomo also says the hospitals will then be denied further shipments of the vaccine if they do not comply. Two top British health officials are recommending the country's COVID alert level be raised. They say that Britain's health system risks being overwhelmed in some areas unless action is taken to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Near London, five teenagers have been arrested following the fatal stabbing of a 13-year-old boy. Four boys and a girl, all aged 13 or 14, have been detained on suspicion of conspiracy to commit murder. And actress Tanya Roberts has died. Best known for her role in the James Bond movie A View to Kill, she also co-starred in the final season of Charlie's Angels. Younger viewers may remember her from the sitcom That 70s Show. Tanya Roberts was 65 years old. Kelly, you are up to date. I will send it back to you. Rest in peace. Sue, thank you very much. You Sue Herrera. It. Now let's get to some news in the healthcare space today. CNBC.com with the scoop that blockbuster healthcare collaboration between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan, known as Haven, will shut down by the end of next month. The companies launched the venture in the hopes of disrupting the healthcare system by making employee healthcare more accessible and affordable. And this was all just three years ago. Maybe it tells you how unrealistic that goal is. Let's welcome in the reporter who broke this story for us, CNBC.com's banking reporter, Hugh Sun. Hugh, what gives? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, one of the issues that they had was, what they found was, although they call it a pretty good incubator for ideas for how to you know, improve outcomes and, of course, reduce the cost in American healthcare, which is obviously out of control, they basically had the issue that they were going ahead and executing and experimenting essentially on their own employee bases, whether they live in Amazon's case, predominantly in Seattle, or with you know Chase and Columbus and in New York, and with Berkshire Hathaway, you know, with their own uh, you know uh, employee base like Geico, where they're based, and they essentially found that a lot of their learnings didn't really apply uh, to to the broader group, and that it became somewhat unwieldy. 
So, you know, three years out, out of, you know, in this effort that was supposed to dramatically disrupt healthcare, they found that it was better to go on their own. Uh, so, Hugh, you make it sound almost like the challenges were purely logistical of trying to get these three companies to cooperate together. But yeah. uh, was there anything in their early uh, efforts that suggested that their goal was unrealistic? I mean, I think let's take a step back. It is laudable what they attempted to do. Here you have the three CEOs, you know, obviously Berkshire Hathaway, Chase and Amazon, you know, titans of, of the industry. And they wanted to basically improve uh, healthcare for their own employees, but also for the rest of us. And so, you know, it obviously came with a lot of pressure, a lot of attention. You know, the day this was announced, there was, you know, a mass, uh, you know, hit in a lot of the healthcare stocks. So we should, you know, give them credit for trying. I do think, though, that, you know, that credit, uh, you know, that pressure made it difficult for them. The structure in which they created, they were essentially a nonprofit. You know, some have reported that essentially that the fact that you couldn't give people, you know, equity in, in this company, that you couldn't give people, you know, super high salaries, that, that that was potentially an issue for them. And so I think, you know, they 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 basically found that let's let's pivot, let's go forward with these projects, let's continue to collaborate where it makes sense informally, but let's not call it Haven anymore. Yeah, I remember they they had the high profile CEO Atul Gawande, was it, who left. Right. I think last year, but that now in retrospect, I mean, you always, when you see a CEO departure, wonder if it's a sign of bigger problems. And now in retrospect, it clearly was. So while they're, as you say, going to pursue a lot of these efforts on their own, and these are all very big, influential, powerful companies who can certainly achieve plenty on their own without working together. Um, I, does it mean it's hopeless for the rest of us? This idea of, you know, more affordable, more streamlined uh, healthcare. I mean, the, the healthcare system in this country is a complete nightmare and it doesn't sound like the three most powerful players coming together could really do much to solve it. Yeah, I know, Kelly. Yeah. So Dr. Atul Gawande, you know, you mentioned accurately that he left. He left in May. They were in the midst of a search for a successor CEO. And obviously, you know, this, this move obviates that. But clearly that's that's a sign, you know, of, of difficulty internally that, that, you know, it's hard to see from the outside. The fact that they have, you know, elevated turnover, beneath Gwande's level, you know, people who reported to him also left as well. I think those are other signs of turbulence internally. But, you know, when you talk about how difficult it is for the rest of us, you know, clearly this is something I think this is my own personal opinion, but this is really a sign of how difficult a nut this is to crack. You know, outsiders, you know, yeah. people who don't really know the industry look at it and say, well, look, you know, Amazon and, and Chase and Berkshire Hathaway, what can't they accomplish? And this says, you know, it is, it is exactly. harder than, than, than we thought. No, and that's absolutely the impression that I'm left with. Hugh, thanks so much. Great stuff. Uh, great scoop. We appreciate you joining us to talk about it. That's Hugh Sun from CNBC.com. And to read his whole piece, head on over to the website. You can read all about it. Coming up here after a quick break, with only about a third of vaccines distributed right now, uh, or administered, I should say, we're going to get the latest numbers and what the head of Operation Warp Speed has suggested people do to ramp up the rollout. And while energy is the best, well, the only green sector today eking out a gain, crude oil is reversing course and falling lower after trading at a level not reached since last February. We're still down about 1%. We'll keep an eye on it. We're back right after this. 
Welcome back. Let's turn now to the vaccine rollout. New numbers from the CDC out just moments ago show that more than 15 million doses have now been distributed, but only about four and a half million have been given to people. This disappointing pace is leading health officials to explore alternatives to get shots into arms faster. Meg Terrell is here now with the very latest. Meg, welcome back. What are we learning? Hi, Kelly. Well, these new numbers are not inspiring a whole lot of confidence. You're looking at less than 30 percent of the doses that have gone out actually getting into people's arms. And that's a little bit of even a slower pace than we'd seen in the previous update. But the expectation is over the coming weeks that should increase. We heard from CDC's Dr. Nancy Massonier last week about why the initial rollout is a bit rocky. She noted these are new vaccines and they have slightly complex handling requirements. She also pointed out, of course, public health departments are incredibly strained health providers as well with just taking care of COVID patients now trying to handle this massive vaccination campaign on top of that. And of course, the winter holidays. Uh, We heard from Dr. Robert Califf, uh, the former FDA commissioner this morning on Squawk on the Street, who pointed out he expects that the numbers will start to look like a hockey stick graph, you know, pretty flat at the beginning, but really should start to shoot up over the coming weeks. Of course, that's what everyone hopes for. Meanwhile, there is a lot of discussion about how to get more vaccine available for folks. And there are a few ideas about how. Uh, Operation Warp Speed's Dr. Monsef Slawi talking about the idea that you could give two half doses of Moderna's vaccine to people ages 18 to 55 because in clinical trials, uh, they showed an identical immune response at a 50 microgram dose to a 100 microgram dose. Meanwhile, over in the UK, they are talking about spacing out the first and second doses of both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccines to at least 12 weeks. Now, that's eight weeks more than was tested uh, in trials, at least of the Pfizer vaccine or nine weeks for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, So that is raising some eyebrows. Uh, In terms of supply, you know, everybody wanting to make sure that more vaccines available, Moderna out with a welcome update today saying that it's now increased its expected supply uh, baseline for this year to 600 million doses, uh, with the top being a billion doses of the range there. Previously, they planned on making at least 500 million, uh, and they do plan to deliver 200 million to the U.S. uh, by the end of the second quarter. Kelly? What, Meg, is the hesitation around those half doses or delaying the second doses that you mentioned? Is it that they're, they'd feel more comfortable if there were actual studies to fall back on, or are there some other hesitations? That's mainly it, just what the the clinical trials have showed. Uh, Monsef Slawi is opposed to the idea of uh, deviating from what's been proven in trials to work. He's more comfortable with this idea of the half dose, he says, because they've seen trial data suggesting the immune response is the same. Um, but actually spacing the doses out, specifically for the Pfizer vaccine, that's not tested. So what Pfizer has said and what health officials here in the U.S. have said is they just don't know for certain what the duration of the immunity will be after 21 days. Uh, And they've asked the public to put so much trust in the scientific process. Their argument is why deviate from that uh, as soon as you, you know, you get these vaccines onto the market. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Uh, But in the meantime, you know, every day that passes, you just go, there's like, come on, we got got to do something. There's got to be a better way. Get those shots at arms, uh, like we said earlier. Meg, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Meg Terrell with the latest at this hour. Still ahead, stocks are sinking in their first trading day of 2021. The Dow dropping more than 700 points at the lows. Uh, We are down about 501 right now. Here's a look at the Dow heat map. You can see Walgreens boots, Walmart. Those are some positive stocks today. Boeing, the worst performer, down 4.5%. 
We're going to look through the risks that are facing this market next. And did Bitcoin tell us something? Near the $35,000 mark, but it's down about 7% today. Have we seen the top? We'll discuss that right after this. Welcome back. Markets are skidding lower this hour with all three major averages down more than 2%. The Dow down 724 at the lows. We're just under 500 right now in terms of the point decline. If you're looking for reasons, we could name a few maybe. The Georgia runoff tomorrow could hand Senate control to the Democrats and increase the scope of President Biden's agenda. Also, some inflation pressures emerging with the market PMI manufacturing report today, noting that selling prices increased at the sharpest rate since May 2011. Still, you're not seeing a huge movement in bond yields. But Bob Bassani is tracking all the latest market moves for us. Michael Santoli is back with a look at these and some of the other risks that have been building in the market. Bob, let's start with you. What are you hearing from traders about what's driving the action today? Well, I think the important thing is look at the markets. Uh, we have almost a 2%, 2% takedown of the whole market. Cyclicals, growth stocks, value stocks, you know, it doesn't really matter. Most of the market is just down. So what would account for this? Yeah, maybe it's some concerns about the Georgia election. But listen to what Meg said. That's very telling. The vaccine rollout isn't going that well. Hopefully they're going to straighten that out. But it, this could imply the economic growth rates are not going to be as strong. Maybe the earnings numbers are not going to be as strong. And I think the important thing here is this makes a lot of sense. I know we're all living in the second half of 2021 when everything's going to be fabulous, but it's going to be a pretty tough COVID winter and stocks are really, really perfectly priced right now. So none of this sounds absolutely crazy to me, given what we've been seeing with the rollout so far. And that's a good point, Mike. I mean, the vaccine, the COVID itself obviously remains the risk. And we can look at how hard hit some of the hotel names, the airline names and other parts are today. But that's not the only place that we're seeing the sell-offs. Um, I mean, is it George? I mean, is it the Senate election tomorrow? Is there? But it, I don't know if that just explains the kind of uh, selling behavior that we're seeing today. What do you think? Not necessarily in itself. I do think it probably creates an excuse for buyers to sort of hold off a little bit. There, there seems to have been uh, some deferred selling, meaning people pushing gains into, into the new year. Uh, there was a sense out there, though, I think the context matters a lot. Three or four or five weeks back, we were able to be saying, and we were saying, that the market looks a little bit stretched technically, that sentiment was getting a little bit overconfident, but it's very difficult to fight the seasonal uptrend in December. And so this would make a lot of sense as an adjustment based on an overbought market, an overloved market, uh, once you get into a new year and you lose those seasonal tailwinds. But also, to, to Bob's point about, you know, the, the time is ticking away for when the acceleration probably needs to happen. I don't think we're at a critical moment yet, but, you know, every day passing was bullish back when we were waiting for the vaccine because we were a day closer. And now every day that we don't have any kind of progress toward return to normal, it seems like it's complicating that picture. I don't know what traders, bullish or bearish, are wishing for or fearing in the Georgia runoff, to be frank, because it seems as if, you know, Democratic yeah. control might be more stimulus or infrastructure, whereas, uh, you know, split government is, has been considered to be bullish for a while right now. So I think it's just more of an excuse of a known catalyst right out ahead of us. And well, that's you, kind Kelly, of the point that Jimmy Patakoukas was making this morning. It's kind of a, a battle between is stimulus more important or, or yeah. regulatory trends, some of these other larger things. Bob, go ahead. I was also going to point out as we look to some of the kind of tells in the market, take a look at Zoom. It's at 350 today. And granted, it's in the green. It was at 588 at its 52-week high, Bob. So, I mean, there there has already been a pretty sharp correction in some of the the highest of the highest flyers this year. What were you going to say? 
Right. That happened a, a couple of months ago. And because we saw the move away from necessarily the stuff benefiting on the work from home towards the more cyclical part of the market. But today, just look, there is enormous volume in broad ETFs like growth and value. They're both down the same amount. They're selling off those thematic ETFs. I bring that up every day, Kelly, you know, the esports and the cybersecurity and the social media and uh, uh, ETFs. They're selling them off in very large volume. This suggests they're not concerned about some particular aspect of the market. There's an overall takedown of exposure in the market. And that makes some sense going along with the, the, the more severe COVID winter around the vaccine rollout and maybe the earnings not quite uh, as strong. Just on the Georgia runoffs, look, we all know there's conservative Democrats that are going to be control of that. If that happens, if you get two Democrats winning in Georgia, you'll get a sudden drop in the market. But remember something, uh, they're not going to get any major legislation passed. We're not going to see dramatic increases uh, in taxation rates. I just don't, don't see it here. I'll tell you what the, the tell is. Tomorrow, the, the, the general retail traders, they have bought every single dip for the last six months, as modest as the dips have been. If, if we come in tomorrow and nothing moves that much, you'll see this is going to be another short-term trend. We'll see if this has legs, these concerns. It, it's a great point, Bob. They have, and we'll see if they're coming out in force maybe already today. Look, we're off the lows. Bob Bassani, Mike Santoli, thank you both. Uh, we appreciate it. Did Bitcoin signal the sell-off was coming? The cryptocurrency touched uh, t- almost $35,000 this morning after its record-breaking weekend run, but has since slumped. You can see it down about 7%. Now Kate Rooney has more on this for us. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Bitcoin kicking off the new year with some wild swings. The cryptocurrency hit an all-time high near $35,000 on Sunday. This morning, it crashed about 15%. It's now trading around 31,000. Analysts say that quick drop and some of the equally quick spikes higher over the weekend have been accelerated by lower supplies of cryptocurrency. Take a look here. As the prices have soared since September, the amount of Bitcoin in circulation has gone the other direction. Thinner markets can mean a few big buyers or sellers have an outsized effect on prices. While Bitcoin's 2020 rally was really driven by new institutional investors getting in, analysts say that Sunday's rally was likely driven by what they call weekend Bitcoiners or retail investors. The retail frenzy is still nowhere near that 2017 level, but small buyers now have an easier way to get in. That's thanks to large uh, companies and those mainstream payment companies like PayPal and Square offering crypto trading. According to Chainalysis, there were more than 38 million smaller transfers of Bitcoin, meaning less than $1,000, into personal wallets last year. That's nearly double the amount from Bitcoin's last big rally about three years ago. Kelly. We were looking at, you know, Google traffic and trends and those kinds of things. And the interest is not where it was then, even though it's so much higher. And we're seeing spillovers into other cryptos, too, right? Right. Ethereum is the second largest cryptocurrency. That's up something 30 or 40 percent in the past few days. And analysts have said, pay attention to that. Now that Bitcoin is seen as this more mainstream asset, investors are now looking for the next big bet if they feel like they missed out on Bitcoin. So Ethereum seems to be that, at least in the eyes of some investors. Mm-hmm. Kate, thanks for tracking it all for us. As mentioned, uh, Kate Rooney, very much appreciate it. Still ahead, markets are selling off ahead of that key Senate election in Georgia tomorrow. We're going to dig a little bit more into that. The race is so heated that nearly half a billion dollars have been spent on ads in just the past two months. We get the latest numbers and a sense of where we stand right after this. 
Tomorrow's runoff election in Georgia will determine the balance of power in the Senate. And with that, what could happen with taxes, tech reform, infrastructure and more? We're talking big stakes and big money as the race to sway voters heats up. Elon Moy is here with the very latest. What do we know, Elon? Well, Kelly, more than three million ballots have already been cast, either through the mail or through early in-person voting. And notably, over 100,000 of them are new voters, people who didn't even participate in the process back in November. According to Target Smart, about 30 percent of them are between the ages of 18 to 29, and about 40 percent are black. Now, this is important because clearly this race has divided the country. We saw that with the controversial phone call between the president and Georgia's secretary of state and the outcome of this election is going to be determined by turnout and mobilization. So that's why Vice President Mike Pence has already been stumping in the state today on behalf of the GOP incumbents, Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. President Trump is going to be holding a rally tonight in the city of Dalton. It's a blue-collar town where turnout so far is at one of the lowest rates in the state, just about 68 percent of what it was back in November. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden will be holding a drive-in rally this afternoon for the Democratic candidates John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. That rally will be in Atlanta, where the turnout rate is more like 80 percent of what it was in November. Right now, Democrats do have a slight edge in the polls, but they are still within the margin of error. So, Kelly, this is going to be a nail biter that determines not just the arc of policy for the new Congress, but also for the new administration. And on that note, Elon, as people think through you know, different scenarios for Senate control, what would change uh, if the Senate does go blue? Yeah, so if the Democrats get 50 votes in the Senate, their menu of options expands, obviously, dramatically. The two most powerful tools they're going to have is control of the agenda, which items actually come up for a vote. We saw how important that was when uh, Mitch McConnell did not let Democrats even vote on those $2,000 stimulus checks, so controlling what comes to the floor. And also, they could use the process of reconciliation to push through certain types of big legislation. They're sort of limited in the kinds of legislation that they can use to with that process. But it is a very powerful tool and one that Republicans use to push through those 2017 tax cuts. So we see how important having even just 50 members of the Senate can be, even if they don't have a 60 vote majority. Exactly. No, I I feel like it's a big deal, Uh, but we'll see how the market reacts to it. We'll see how the race comes in and it'll be exciting to watch. Elon, thank you very much. Our Elon Moy in Washington. The Senate runoff in Georgia is just one of the three factors that Morgan Stanley sees as a reason for a market downturn. You can read about that and the other two at CNBC.com slash pros. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.